The cave guys probably don't like me for that. Let's set that. I'm going to set that there. I will receive a stern talking to you later. All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me uh, in just a little bit. If you're watching us online, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen when you get to that point. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to, to be uh, filtered by this, uh, this knowing of him. And if he uses the scriptures to do that in your heart, in life, and it seems really, really smart to be reading the Bible a lot, and so we want to put one in your hands and uh, come up with some creative ways for you to be reading it, um, and so if you don't have one, take that one. Uh, so we are making a slow walk through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Um, I actually spent some time this week uh, kind of cleaning up the, the preaching calendar a little bit, and so Lord willing, our plan is to finish it uh, the last Sunday of September, all right? So for those of you who, who, are think, who are like more light at the end of the tunnel kind of people, that's your light. That's where the tunnel ends, the end of September, all right? Um, but if you're doing the math in your head right now, that also means that we have a couple more months of doing this, all right? So uh, it, we get bogged down in some stuff at the back end of 1 Corinthians. But by God's grace, man, we're going to get there. Uh, we're going to get there. We started this, this uh, path uh, last fall, last September, actually. Uh, and so we started walking through 1 Corinthians together, and now we're here. Um, first, if, if you haven't been here uh, the entire time, or maybe you, you showed up late or whatever it is, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very young uh, and very arrogant young church uh, in the Greek city of Corinth. And, and so uh, with that, there was, there was a lot of intellect, there was a lot of talent, there was a lot of pride, all right? And so all of those things are kind of swirling around in a perfect storm. And so uh, because of the, those things and because of that pride, there was also a lot of infighting. Uh, Corinth was just kind of a mess. Everybody was jockeying for position. Everybody was running their own routes, chasing down personal agendas, those kinds of things. And so Paul's approach to loving the Corinthian church well was to write them this letter as a part of a larger dialogue of letters uh, to remind them that God's kingdom, the one that they had supposedly been saved into, was uh, it, it didn't look anything at all like all the competing kingdoms of the world. In fact, God's kingdom valued different things. Uh, it, it, it built up and exalted different things. He argues that God has built out his good kingdom to be intentionally upside down from everything else that you can find in this world kingdom-wise. It's upside down in every possible way. And the centerpiece of this otherworldly kingdom, the star that everything else revolves around, is an infinitely valuable king who took on the form of a slave and laid down his own life for the good and the salvation of not his subjects, but his enemies. Kings don't do that. At least not earthly ones. Jesus' death and resurrection not only secured the salvation of all those who would place their faith in him, but he also set the standard for how his kingdom citizens should live and see the world. Dying to this world and being raised again to chase after eternal prizes. And so, back in chapter 11, a few weeks ago, Paul began 
helping the Corinthian church see how this others-focused posture of service, it plays out within the context of, of the gathered church body. When everybody gets in one room together, what does this others-focused posture of service actually look like? How does that spell itself out? And so, uh, like, it, it's one thing for that, that Jesus expects to, uh, us to serve each other like he first served us, but it's another thing entirely to begin applying that reality to the daily life of the Christian community. And so in chapter 11, Paul starts out, out by talking about gender roles, which, let's be honest, it's kind of a touchy subject in our culture, right? But he argues that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we will always prove our love for God and our trust in the sufficiency of his design when we simply do what he's commanded us to do. We will always get ourselves in trouble when we pretend that we're smarter than him. Always. And so despite what the world around us fails to understand about his design, and despite the, the ridicule and the scorn that we'll likely receive by walking in obedience to God, we trust that God is good. And we trust that he sees the end from the beginning. And we trust that his design will outlast every single culture, including the ones that can't make any sense of his kingdom. That was the first half of chapter 11. The second half, a couple weeks ago, we looked at how this others-focused posture plays out when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We take this meal that we call the Lord's Supper as a family with a common confession. It's not just some religious box to check off. The posture in which we take this meal matters. We slow down on purpose, and we make sure that everybody is here for the moment. And so we repent of sin together, and then we illustrate the grace of God for that sin together. And then last week, we moved on to chapter 12, and we saw that an others-focused posture of service dramatically affects how we see and use the spiritual gifts, Right? These special equippings of the Holy Spirit we're told about, and they're given for the common good of the church. They, they build us up as a community of believers and are given to help us do what God has called us as his people to do. And when we forget that reality, when we forget that, that they are not for us, but actually for others, it never, ever, ever takes very long before our egos step in and make a mess of the gifts. We, we just topple them quickly. We end up twisting them into what they were never given to be, tools to manipulate for our own personal game. But Paul's not quite ready to leave the spiritual gifts topic just yet. He's got some more to say, and so let's look at it together, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, so Paul is going to begin to, to lean a little heavier now on this for the benefit of others kind of dynamic. He starts throwing out an illustration here uh, for the Corinthians to grab a hold of. He starts talking about a body, a human body. A singular organism, but that singular organism is made up of several distinct parts, right? Members, he calls them. And how did this body come together? Well, by the work of the Spirit. The one who apportions to each one individually as he wills, we're told. It says that we're all baptized into one body. 
Now, Paul's not talking about the physical sign of baptism here, although that physical sign does partially serve to point to this reality. No, he's, he's talking about being fully immersed in this brand new identity. This brand new identity, dead to the old reality, dead to the old life, and brought to life again in the new one, right? The, the, the things that used to define you no longer define you. You have been given a new identity in the body of Christ. The Spirit didn't just add the Jesus-y stuff to your already stellar personality. No, you fundamentally changed who you are. You are a new creation in Christ. While we are united together in one body, that does not mean that everybody in the room is exactly the same. In fact, we come from wildly different backgrounds. Wildly different backgrounds. Those backgrounds don't define us anymore. Jesus does, but it would be an incredible overstatement to try to argue that those backgrounds don't influence us at all. And so Paul points to a couple of the ones, that, a couple of the varying backgrounds in, that are playing out in Corinth. You got Jews. You got Greeks, you got slaves, you got free men. Some, like the Jews, come from generations and generations of religious tradition and attempts to earn favor with the Lord. And they've been brought into this body, not by anything of their own merit, but by the grace and sufficient work of Jesus on their behalf. And you got others like the Greeks, man. They come from very pagan backgrounds. There's a lot going on in their life that you wouldn't exactly call clean. They've been baptized in this one body, dead to sin and alive to Christ. Some come as literal slaves and are now experiencing what true freedom means in Christ. They have been set free in the Lord. While others come as free men who are learning what it means to be a slave to righteousness. All these varying backgrounds, but all baptized into one body of Christ by the Spirit. And, and the differences obviously go way beyond just backgrounds, though. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Okay, so we've got this unhealthy pattern in the Corinthian church of them uh, kind of creating a hierarchy of spiritual gifts, all right? And so uh, they're, they're, all kinda, uh, they're all kind of jockeying for a position here. And so those with more miraculous gifts, and specifically in the Corinthian context, uh, those with the, the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, uh, those with the more miraculous gifts have kind of been pushing their way to the front, exalting themselves and kind of using the presence of that really miraculous gift to kind of throw their weight around. Uh, that's what we see happening in this church. And, and so and they've been getting away with it mostly because like, there was this underlying assumption floating out there that, well, these gifts are supposedly a sign from God that God must be really proud of you and blessing you in some kind of way. God must be really happy with me or impressed with me because he's made me more special than everybody else. I mean, just look at how awesome these gifts are, right? Who's going to argue that? 
That's what's going on here. So Paul points to this illustration of a human body. He says, hey, 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 you realize that ears are pretty important too, right? We all get this, right? There's not two categories here. We're not, we don't have some who are an influential part of the body and then some others that are just kind of along for the ride. There's not two categories here. There's one category here. Members of the body. Yes, the eyes are quite special. God has given them for an incredibly glorious purpose. But last time I checked, hearing was pretty awesome too. And forcing me to try to choose between hearing and seeing, that's only ever going to end up in a deformed body. They're not meant to be enemies. They're friends. Hands are pretty spectacular, but... If the body doesn't also have God's good gift of feet, moving around is going to be a very difficult thing to pull off. Paul says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, right? There would be no body. You'd have a giant pile of noses. As a side note, if you ever meet somebody who's happy with a giant pile of noses, stop what you're doing and call the cops. Right? Paul says, God has arranged the members as he chose. As he chose. Meaning, God's design is built into every single bit of the formation of the church body. Every bit of it. We can say that a different way. Not, there is no one, no one, absolutely no one is a part of Nashua Baptist Church by accident. Period. Period. God wasn't hoping to give us a few more administrators this year, but, you know, got the paperwork mixed up and gave us a couple of teachers instead. That's not how that works. No, he has composed the body as he has chosen. As he has chosen. It's true for us, and it was just as true for the Corinthian church. Just as true for them. Which is interesting, because this is literally the exact opposite of the way they, they were seeing things. Everybody wanted to get their hands on specific gifts and specific positions of authority. As if they were just some kind of prize that you could claim for yourself. But not only does this completely ignore God's plan for the church, but it also, it also ends up with a lot of ears pretending to be eyeballs. And we could laugh at such a ridiculous idea, but well, the more tragic side of it all is that it also led to a complete breakdown of gospel community. So look at what he says in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. Let's call it time out there. So in, in the last paragraph, we saw the results of this nonsense for the have -nots, from the have-nots point of view. Right? Those who, who didn't have the more spectacular, miraculous gifts, they're seeing this kind of thing as, 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 as them not being a part of the body. They feel left out. They feel like they don't add value to the body, and so they feel disconnected. But here in this paragraph, Paul shifts to the haves point of view. He shifts to the haves point of view. The haves proudly believe that they don't need the rest of the body. The body should just be thankful that they let them hang around. And so Paul returns to his illustration. 
I can't say to the hand that I have no need of you. What are you talking about? Eyes are wonderful, but all they can ever do is look at stuff, right? You can behold the beauty of something all day long, but sometimes, sometimes it's better to pick something up, right? Eyeballs can't do that. The eye is powerless, completely powerless to touch something without the hand. It doesn't matter what kind of special things the eye might be able to do. If you want to touch something, the hand is indispensable. It would be ridiculous for the eye to think that it doesn't need the rest of the body. In fact, detached from the body, the eye can't even do its one job of seeing. It needs the brain's help. And so any, any kind of posture that would ever suggest that some people with specific gifts are indispensable to the church, and while others with other gifts maybe are not so indispensable. It's surely important, just not quite as important. It's nothing more than blind arrogance. Paul says, on the contrary, the parts that seem weaker are the ones that are indispensable. The parts that we think less honorable are the ones that we show greater honor to. Even the parts of the body that are not publicly respectable and presentable, those are the parts that we rightly show greater care and greater modesty for. We, we give them more respect than the really presentable parts. You have to ignore fundamental realities about human anatomy to try and assert that one part of the body doesn't desperately need every other part of the body. They come as a package. In the same way, you also have to ignore fundamental realities about the church to assert that one gift within the church carries all the weight and everybody else can just come or go. Fundamentally misunderstands the church. It's a ridiculous idea. Fortunately, though, ridiculous ideas are sometimes incredibly easy to fall into especially when you believe that everything you're good at was given to you to serve yourself. Ridiculous ideas flow quickly when you buy into the lie that your talent and your position have earned you a few things. That's precisely where Corinth was. There are a number of Christian leaders in our own day that we can point to, and this reality this one right here, this, this I've, I've arrived and I deserve some things now posture. There's, there's a number of former Christian leaders that we can point to in our own day and age that this is the reason for their downfall. It got to their heads. God made them some really good at some stuff and, well, they didn't deal with it well. So how do we guard against such nonsense here? How do we make sure that that doesn't happen to us? Well, I think that the answer is that we consistently remind ourselves of who the Lord of the church actually is. Look at verse, the second half of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
So God is the one composing the body, right? He's, he's the one uh, uh, stitching various parts of the body together. And so where there used to be division between Jew and Greek, and there used to be division between slave and free, God is the one who is uniting all of them together in one body. He's the one that's assigning gifts, and he's the one that's determining who would receive the greater honor, and he's the one, and he's doing it in such a way, I, I think he's doing it in such a way that it ought to come incredibly natural for us to respond with care when other parts of the body suffer, right? Um, you ever walked through the living room in the dark and had your pinky toe meet the coffee table? The entire body responds in that moment, right? There is no, let me check the calendar and see if I can squeeze you in sometime next week. The entire body is personally aware of the pain of one member. Every part of the body is paying attention to the pinky toe in that moment. Now, some parts of the body may have a more personal involvement in trying to deal with the problem, but the entire body is intimately aware of the issue. And they care about it. See, when part of the body suffers, the rest of the body experiences that suffering. It joins in with that suffering. But the reverse is also true. When part of the body is honored, the rest of the body rejoices with them. They join in with that rejoicing. And you'd think, you'd really think that that would be an easy thing to pull off, right? It should be obvious. But that same core level dysfunction of seeing the gifts as something that are for you to serve yourself, it causes you at the same time to see other parts of the body as rivals to the glory that you're chasing. And so instead of rejoicing with others when they're honored, you grumble. And instead of suffering along with others when they suffer, you gloat. You lean into divisions and you lean into factions. You go tribal in that moment because you feel that in that moment, that's the best way to protect what it is you really love. And it works so hard to achieve. And then once you've decided that the other guys or the enemies robbing you of what you rightfully deserve, it moves beyond just divisions within the church into what we see going on here in Corinth. I told you all at the beginning of this series that the pathway from healthy, vibrant church to Corinthian train wreck was not that far of a walk. Shift the wrong things and it goes south really quickly. This is one of those things. This is one of those things. Whether you want to chalk it up to their youthfulness or their in lofty intellect or their incredible talent or some combination of all three, the Corinthian church had lost sight of the fact that every good thing they could point to about themselves was given to them by God for the express purpose of proclaiming the gospel and for building up the church. They lost sight of that. So everybody in the room was clamoring to make a name for themselves. And everybody in the room was working their tails off to, to get to the front of the line. And everybody in the room was picking sides and playing the game, man. Which leads Paul to say this in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, 
third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All right, so the more astute reader in the room might be asking some questions right about now. Namely, hey, uh, did Paul just create a hierarchy of gifts here? I mean, I very distinctly remember arguing over the last couple of weeks that that was a, a not so good thing to do. And we you know, just discovered that the clear message of everything that Paul just laid out for us in the last two paragraphs here, that, I mean, that's the same concept. But here in verse 28, Paul gives a list of spiritual gifts in order of importance. First, second, third. So what do we do with it? Did Paul just contradict himself? Is this a do as I say, not as I do kind of moment? I, I don't think it is. Um, with, with the guardrail that every member of the body desperately needs the rest of the body, and with the guardrail uh, of God appointing by his choosing various gifts across the church body for his purposes rather than our own, I think Paul takes the next step in his train of logic here and says, hey, hey, you want a hierarchy of gifts? I'll give you a hierarchy of gifts. Uh, and then he goes on to list out several different gifts in the order that they seem to help other people rightly understand the gospel and build up the church. He starts with apostles. No, not because they carry authority in the church. They, they do, obviously, carry authority, but they use that authority to verbally speak God's word and teach the gospel to everyone. And he lists off the prophets. What do they do? They're helping to bring insight into God's word and direction to the church. And list off teachers. They're, they're helping the rest of the church understand and apply God's word, right? And then after that, fifth and, or fourth and fifth, comes miracles and healing. As awesome as those two gifts are, like who doesn't want to see some miracles and healing in their day, right? As awesome as those two gifts are, Paul says, hey, if you want a hierarchy here, I'll give you a hierarchy here. Miracles and healing, they come after the gifts that help everybody understand the gospel well. They're lower on the list. You've got helpers. You've got administrators. Why? Because the church is built up and strengthened by them. Hey, like, like the gospel goes forward more powerfully when there, there's some people in the church body who are helping to make sure everything is organized and done well, right? Like our church would be in a mess if Jody wasn't around. <laughs> but, um... What, what, what does Paul put as the last two things on his list of importance? Speaking and interpreting tongues. The very thing, the thing that the Corinthians were all bent out of shape about chasing after, the gift that they put on the top of the pedestal and called everyone else to celebrate, everyone else to idolize, Paul puts that gift at the very bottom of his list. He says, if we're going to create a list, then it ought to be ordered by what is most helpful to the church body. And the thing that you're pretending is the most important thing here is actually the least helpful thing here. It's the least helpful thing here. Paul cuts their legs right out from under them and tells them, hey, listen, you're chasing the wrong thing. You're spending all of your time and all of your energy chasing down something that doesn't even help us right now. What are you doing? 
Now, does that mean that we should all go chasing after trying to be apostles and prophets then? Do things at the top of his list? No, it's still not your call. Nor would that be helpful to the church. We don't need a bunch of ears trying to be eyes instead. But in verse, so in verse 29, Paul starts asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Okay, so I need to draw an incredibly clear distinction here, a very clear distinction. It is not, hear me, it is not out of bounds for someone to grow into new gifts and grow into new positions within the church. In fact, that's quite often the best way that God works. Many of you likely have a story where you were on the fringe and you began serving in some capacity, and over time that, that serving turned into leading that thing, right? It wasn't because we trapped you in that thing. It's because God grew you. That serving turned, in, turned into leading at some point. So God can and does mature us in roles and gifts within the church. I think even sometimes he may even create new gifts in us. At the very least, that were under the surface before. My own story kind of plays out like that. I finished college thoroughly convinced that I was going to be a music minister somewhere. Um, in fact, I, it was the only thing I could ever imagine myself doing with my life. I, ma I made a regular practice of dodging the responsibility of leading Bible studies even while I was in ministry that was revolved around Bible studies. I let other guys do it, and I just did the music. A couple years into that, those other guys left, and I was the only guy around. <laughs> I couldn't run away from it anymore. And... Uh, when it was forced upon me, I, I realized that I really like it. And now I can't imagine doing anything other than with my life than preaching the gospel all the time. Like, like what else would I do? If I don't have this, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. It is not out of bounds at all. At all for someone to grow into new gifts and new positions within the church. The problem lies in what we're aiming for. So Paul says, hey, if you're going to if you're going to desire growing in these things, then aim for what can help serve people. Aim for what helps people understand the gospel and helps the church do what the church has been called to, to do. But if you're aiming for something else, something that you can get out of it, something that you can position yourself and posture yourself for some, some kind of personal gain, then maybe you might be out of bounds. Maybe we've got a problem here that we need to address. Maybe you're a lot more like the Corinthians than you know. So, so what is necessary then to keep our aspirations in the right place? How, how do we channel those aspirations in a way that's beneficial rather than self-serving? Well, it's what the Apostle Paul here calls a more excellent way. A more excellent way. Paul's going to show us what that looks like, but that happens in chapter 13. We'll talk about that next week. I'll give you a hint, though. The chapter has Nothing. I'm excited about next week. I think God will show us some good things. But how can we respond to his word this morning? What do we do with this text? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, 
I think he's showing us that he is the one that is Lord of the church. Not me. Definitely not me. Not you. Not any council or board or committee. He is the Lord of the church. And he has placed you here and equipped you here for a grand purpose. Not something that makes much of yourself. That's not what we're talking about. But this isn't a place to build little petty kingdoms. No, no. in his goodness, he has given each of us a role to play in his story of reconciling the world to himself. He's invited you along and given you a spot. You are not here by accident. You are an indispensable part of the body. I can say it a different way. We need you. We need you. The word, the word is need. We need you. And the reverse is true. You need us. So press in, man. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. We need every part of our body to be plugging away. However God has equipped you in whatever role that he's given you to, to play. Hear me. It also means, ugh, this is the hard one. It also means that when you pull away from the body, both the member and the body suffers. Healthy bodies like hanging out together. Doctors get a little concerned when parts of the body don't like hanging out together. So press in. With everything you got, man, press in. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a moment to set aside to do some business with the Lord. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Uh, listen, you can respond to God's word too. And you do that, you do that by meeting Jesus the Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God relationally because of our sin. We are owed the just punishment for that sin. Sometimes the Bible calls that punishment wrath. Sometimes that, the Bible calls that punishment death. It never calls it something fun. It's never a good thing. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves you with a great love, even when you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins, the Bible says he makes you alive. How does he do that? By giving us an infinitely better gift than some kind of special ability to serve the church. No, he gives us himself. God wants to give you himself. The eternal son of God laid aside what was owed to him. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he took on the form of a servant, we're told. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. He was raised again to life as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And the one who conquered sin and death now calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. Repentance is a churchy word. I know that. It simply means to turn away from your sin. To turn away from all of your efforts to be Lord and King over your own heart and life. And instead turn to him as Savior and Lord. Faith is another churchy word, but it's nothing more than the Bible's word for trust. That's all it is. It's a trust that lays down all of your attempts to try to pretty yourself up or pass yourself off as pleasing to God and instead trust His work on your behalf. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. If you want someone to talk to about what that response looks like, my friend Jeff will be down front here. He'd love to be helpful to you. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family now. Father, you're good to us.
Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 12. Thank you for every incredibly unique and necessary body part here. Thank you that you give us eyeballs and tongues and brains and pinky toes. And no matter who you've called us and created us to be, would we, would we all see together that we desperately need each other? That each one of us is indispensable for what you have called us to do and be? God, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you introduce yourself to some people this morning? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.